This is an ABC podcast. My earliest memory is sitting on a sheet of corrugated iron in the garden of our old house in Maribara. The sun was filtering through all the green and it felt like a rare moment of quiet, of being alone, away from all my brothers and sisters. But then I have other memories that are just as real, but which frankly could not have happened. Memory is a mysterious, slippery thing, a kind of shimmering eel in our consciousness. But for psychiatrist Veronica O'Keene, memory is also the most creative and personal part of the brain. It's memory that's at the very heart of who we each are. Veronica has treated patients who have completely lost their short-term memory and others who, through psychosis, have confused memory and reality with terrifying consequences. Her book, which draws on the rapidly evolving field of neuroscience, as well as her years working with patients, is called The Rag and Bone Shop, How We Make Memories and Memories Make Us. Veronica is Professor of Psychiatry and Consultant Psychiatrist at Trinity College Dublin and she was visiting Australia for the World Science Festival. Hi Veronica. Hi. What's your earliest memory? Well my earliest memory is, I've dated it back to when I was about three and a half and I remember looking down and I was wearing an orange cardigan that my mother had hand knit And the various stages of my childhood really have been marked by the time zones of outgrowing one and growing (laughs) into another. So that was my orange period. So your mum was knitting you different different jumpers as you grew as you grew bigger. That's right. And I was getting the hand-me-downs from my older sister. But uh, that that was my first memory. And the reason I remember it is because we were actually moving house at the time. I can remember sitting on something that wasn't a chair and my mum said uh, that I was sitting on a wooden crate that they were transporting things in. And I think that's very typical of our first memory is of some event that makes an impact on us. And that's really at the, the heart of memory is we remember things that have an emotional content for us in terms of our autobiographical memory. Why were you moving back at three or so? Well, my my father worked in a job and we moved um, around Ireland quite a bit. So in Ireland, people can't place my accent, obviously. Um, Here, I just have a generic Irish accent, but we moved around quite a bit. So with a lot of moving as a child, was there a place that felt the most like home for you? Absolutely. And that was in County Kerry, which is in the southwest of Ireland. It's a very beautiful place. And my mum came from a a small farm down there and uh, we spent all our summers there. So my memories of childhood really are consecutive summers down there playing on the farm. What was school like for you as a kid? Well, school was, was, was a very closeted sort of institution when I went there. Ireland at the time was a very strictly Catholic state. It was really a de facto theocracy. All of our thinking from the moment we were born, from baptism through to death, really was dominated by religion, as was our politics. Um, The state and the church were very tightly interwoven. So we we lived in this sort of slightly fossilised Victorian state. And my, my education was very characteristic. If you read James Joyce, how he was taught by the Jesuits is exactly how we were taught. I was born 70 years after James Joyce died. And and really, when I read his books, it's exactly the same education that I received. Were you taught science at school? Well, that's a very interesting point, because that's when the world really became alive for me. At the time, girls, believe it or not, weren't really taught science. We were being brought up to be teachers and secretaries. And um, but we weren't being brought up to be leaders and certainly not to be medics. So um, I was very lucky to be amongst the first generation of girls to be educated in science. 
And the world just opened up for me. It's the scales fell away from my eyes and I just couldn't get enough of of the whole of science. And I wanted to drill it down, really, right down to a molecular level. I was always fascinated by science. What were your science teachers like at high school? Is there one that stands out? There was one nun, Sister Maria Goretti, and she taught us chemistry at a higher level and she'd never taught it before. So in a sense, our chemistry classes, we, we would come into school, especially on Saturday morning. There was a group of six girls and uh, Sister Maria Goretti and we were working out the book together <laughs> and it was so exciting because sometimes I would be at home and I'd suddenly understand something. So we were, we were teaching each other in many ways. Was, was she excited by it too, do you think? Hugely, hugely. It was very, it felt very innovative at the time. And we were, you know, we were a special class. We were the first class to be doing honours chemistry at a higher level. So it was, it was really good fun. And how did the decision to study medicine after school arrive for you? Well... Really, I, I suppose I saw the brain as the ultimate frontier and the source of creativity and knowledge and science. But there was very little about the brain as such then. Psychology was a pretty underdeveloped discipline and it was really more related to clinical matters. It didn't have a very well-developed scientific base. So I decided to do medicine because... The only real knowledge I could develop about the brain would be through neurology and through medicine. So um, that's what I decided when so, I was quite young. So even back then it was the brain that had really Absolutely. captured your imagination, yeah. your thinking. When you began studying medicine, Veronica, what were you taught about the brain? How was it understood in those years? Very little was understood about it and very little was taught to us. I mean, it is quite extraordinary. We, we learned one thing about the emotional and memory circuitry in the brain. And um, really, that was it. And it was presented to us in a way that was completely not integrated with the rest of the brain. So there was the neurology brain, which is really the outer surface of the brain, you know, sensation and movement. And then there was this mush in the middle of the brain. And this was the mush that I was interested in. <laughs> and it was, you know, we were given we were given a circular pathway called Papez's circuit. And that described a circuitry, but it didn't tell you what was going on. And and there was there was no explanation. Nobody was particularly interested in it. So really, throughout my career has felt like uh, it has felt like an exploration. Of, of uncharted terrain. Right, from like when you were teaching self-chemistry, that excitement, I guess, in, in learning science, in, yeah. in uncharted territories opening That's up correct. before you. Yeah, learning things, you know, I mean, for example, cortisol. We, we started out, um, I suppose, crumbling away at the fringes of the brain by looking at what went from the body into the brain and how this would affect the brain. So during the 90s, we were very involved in what hormones did in the brain, because we could measure hormones. We could take them from the body and we could look at what they were doing in the brain. We were puzzling, really, about what does this cortisol do in the brain? Why is it so important in depression? And now it's, it's, the, it's the subject of coffee conversation, you know, the effects that the stress hormones have on the brain. You took a job at the oldest psychiatric hospital in the world, at Bethlehem Royal Hospital, though people might be more familiar with its original name. What was it called first off? Well, it was originally called the Bedlam Hospital. And um, it is the oldest psychiatric hospital in the world. And that is, uh, you know, to its credit and to the credit, really, of the uh, more enlightened people of the time, because... It was only at this period in history, which is really only the beginning of the 19th century, that mental illness began to be seen as an illness of the brain, that people really only became brain aware, really, in the, you know, in the 19th century. Before that, madness was considered to come from the devil or from God. So the idea of illness was very new. And I guess the more enlightened people who understood that the, the brain was a part of the body, 
um, developed these um, the, the mental hospitals, of which the Bedlam was one, and the um, original residents in, in the Bedlam, they were actually on public display on Sunday afternoons and people would come in for a stroll to visit the lunatics. Like visiting a zoo, almost. Absolutely. What patients were you focused on in your early years there? Who were you seeing? What were their symptoms? Well, I had a very interesting job there. I was leading a what's called a perinatal psychiatry service. It specifically deals with psychiatric disorder of women during pregnancy and in the year following childbirth. So I ran an inpatient unit there, which was a national inpatient unit for the, the whole of the UK, where we treated women who were very ill indeed and required inpatient care. So the majority of women who came to me, and there were about 100 patients a year, were extremely ill indeed. And most of them suffered from a rare illness called postpartum psychosis. So I had a fantastic opportunity over a period of five years of seeing a series of cases and the privilege of, of dealing with women who were so ill um, in a very concentrated way. I saw, you know, hundreds of patients um, and a psychiatrist in an average career would probably see a handful of patients with this disorder. And were these women, Veronica, on the whole, who had pre-existing mental illness that had just been intensified during pregnancy and childbirth, or had the experience of pregnancy actually triggered a, a psychosis? Well, 50% of women who experience postpartum psychosis have never been mentally ill in their lives before. So it's, it's absolutely shocking because there's very little education about it. And it's an incredibly serious illness. What, what happens is in the days leading up to birth or following birth, the woman becomes confused, uh, disorientated, stops communicating, often doesn't recognise her baby, sometimes might think that her partner or her loved ones around her or even the baby has been substituted. And it's probably where the uh, fairy story idea of the changeling comes from. So it, it's, it's rare, but it's very, very dramatic. And do psychiatrists know what causes this? Why do some women fall prey to this terrible thing? Well, we, we do know because the, it's, it's very closely related to bipolar affective disorder. And um, if, you've, if you have a personal history of bipolar affective disorder, there's a 50% chance you will develop a postpartum psychosis. However, it develops de novo or out of the blue, as I said, in 50% of cases. Now, if you have a, a family history of postpartum psychosis and you have bipolar disorder, there's a 70% chance that you will develop it. So it's definitely mediated by the bipolar genetic predisposition. But there does, in addition, seem to be something in terms of the specific trigger. And there's been men, much speculation about what that might be. And indeed, I've done a lot of research looking at the various hormones and the decline in those hormones and how that decline in hormones might trigger neurotransmitter abnormalities in the brain. And that neurotransmitter abnormality then might trigger a psychosis. Tell me about a patient you worked with there who was suffering postpartum psychosis, a woman that you refer to as Edith. Yeah, well, Edith was a, a really wonderful woman who made a huge impact on my life. She developed a postpartum psychosis. She was one of the women who developed it uh, without any preceding history of mental illness. She was pregnant with in a stable relationship, very much a wanted baby. And in the days following childbirth, she became very disorientated and behaving in a very uncharacteristic way for her. And her GP immediately recognised postpartum psychosis and she was brought in to us. And when she presented, she had many of the experiences that we're familiar with. Um, she thought her baby wasn't her baby. She, in fact, thought her baby was dead. Now, this is something that happens quite a bit. And she thought that the baby that was there in the cot at home was in fact a substitute baby. 
And on her way to hospital, she'd passed a graveyard. And in the graveyard, she had seen a small tilted stone because it was a very old grave. And she immediately knew in a psychotic, delusional way that her child was buried under that gravestone. How awful. How did you help her? What, what did you do to treat someone who had such distressing delusions about their loved ones, their baby? Well, the, the good news is it's very, very treatable. The treatment, first of all, is bringing somebody into hospital and keeping her safe and keeping baby safe. Because Edith thought that, you know, there was a whole um, paranoid persecutory plot in which her baby had been removed from her and a substitute baby put in place. And if you typically with that set of delusions, delusional misidentification, you also think your doctors are fake and you think your husband may not be a real husband. Gosh, what a horribly distressing, isolating feeling that must be. No one that you can trust yeah. at all. It's absolutely shocking. It's difficult to imagine. And the, the other thing about psychosis that I think a lot of us possibly don't know is that when we talk about hearing voices, we're not talking about voices in your head. We're talking about voices in external space. So the voices are speaking to the psychotic person in the same way that we're speaking. So they hear the voices and they are looking around to identify the voices. So I, I suppose with Edith uh, recovered completely. And so, so she's in the hospital, she's kept physically safe, but how did you treat her once she was there? We, we give her antipsychotic drugs. And these work really very quickly within a period of 48 hours. Um, and within a couple of weeks, she was no longer psychotic, but hugely traumatised by the experience. And it was a very big adjustment to reality because the shock of having been removed from a shared reality, the shock of believing that about your baby, about the people around you, it really shatters your confidence. What did that patient, Edith, then say to you after she got better that really triggered this interest that's lasted throughout your career, this interest in memory? Yeah, Edith was, was a fascinating woman. She was, a, she was a very articulate person and somebody who really had great insight into her own psychological mechanisms. And when I brought her back for the outpatient appointment, she told me that, you know, she was slowly adapting to um, a sane world, but that she was still deeply shocked by what had happened. And we discussed the delusional systems that she had experienced. And she told me that on her way back to visit me in the hospital, that she'd passed that same graveyard. And she had looked at the tilted headstone and she said she had a rush of an experience. And she was for temporarily, just momentarily, back in her psychotic state, believing her baby was buried there. And what she was actually describing was a traumatic flashback. And I, you know, in my very clinical way, I said, well, that's, that's terribly interesting, but you do realise that that didn't happen. And she said, well, that may not be real, but the memory is real. And I had this really, you know, amazing insight. It's very, very obvious, but of course, Regardless of whether something happens in external reality, in a common shared reality, what we perceive to happen, even if it's completely psychotic, is laid down in the cellular matrix of our memory. And that is that is real. That is what has happened. That is a person's memory. And that goes on to shape their identity. And, I, you know, following up with Edith later, she said the, the psychosis was... You know, changed her and was very much a part of what had happened to her. She didn't try to pretend it didn't happen, but she began to understand the world in, in a much broader way, actually. So whether something happened in the external world or not, the experience is the same for the person who has a memory of it. So the memory is just as real whether the event happened or didn't happen, whether it happened in the mind or happened in the external world. They feel equally real. Absolutely. It's a beautiful illustration, Veronica, of the kind of um, 
dance that I guess happens between a good psychiatrist and a patient, that it wasn't just you giving her the information or the interpretation. She was opening your mind to a deeper understanding of, of the brain. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You know, William James, who's uh, one of my heroes, he's pre-Freudian and I think um, a much more interesting person than Freud was, although Freud seems to have all the... Um, be ascribed all the glamour. Um, but he was brother of, of Henry James, the great novelist. But it was actually William James who coined the phrase stream of consciousness. He was he was terribly interested in memory. But he said something that has, um, you know, become very central to the way I have understood the way the brain works. And that is, he said, we can learn about the normal from the abnormal. Treating people with emotional disorders, with perceptual disorders, is a very good window. The pathology is a very good window in terms of explaining normal experience. Let's look at what is happening inside our brain in terms of memory. I mean, if we start with a very basic metaphor, are memories in the brain like a, a box full of keepsakes or an album full of photos? Are the memories stored there somewhere in a spot inside our heads? In, in some ways, yes, but memory is not a repository with a filing cabinet. It's much more organic than that. And I think that the thing about the brain is that although we learn about it in quite a parcellated way, both in terms of the anatomy and in terms of the function, that overall it, it works as a huge pervasively interconnected mass of 68 billion neurons and each neuron has up to 15,000 dendrites or connections with other neurons. So while you might talk at a very basic reductionist level about what might be happening at a dendrite, if you put it all together, it's so far from reductionist, um, it's, it's so astronomical that it, it's, it's almost dizzying. No wonder you felt like an explorer. Is, is there a part <laughs> of the brain, a, a, one element of the, the brain that is associated with the creation and storing of memory? Absolutely. And that's, that's at, at, at the very core of the brain and it's called the hippocampus. So if you can imagine the outside of the brain is, is like a, a shell and on the underside of that shell is the hippocampus. So the brain curls around and all the neurons go down to the hippocampus. So all of this sensation from the world that goes onto the surface of the brain, all of the, the side cortex, the auditory cortex, the touch cortex, all of that curls around and goes down to the hippocampus, which is the memory maker in the brain. What does it look like, this part of the brain? <laughs> well, it's, I don't know if anybody is a, a, knows Latin anymore, but basically um, hippocampus is Latin for seahorse. <laughs> Does it look like a seahorse? Absolutely looks like a seahorse. So it's it's kind of a uh, an S-shaped curled piece of neural tissue. And, uh, you know, it's quite recognisable if you dissected the brain because it's, 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 as I said, it's very much at the centre and the bottom of the brain and old pathways curl down to it. Is it coloured? Um, not really. The brain is very grey. Um, the only colours in the brain really are grey and white. And the, the grey is on the outside of the brain. And the white then is the tracks that come from the outside of the brain to the middle of the brain. You, you just quoted earlier, Veronica, uh, William James, who talked about being able to learn about the normal by looking at the abnormal. So if we look at someone and you've had patients whose hippocampus has been damaged what does that mean for their behaviour, their experience of being in the world, if that core part of memory making or memory, memory creation in the brain is damaged in some way? It, it, it's inconceivable to imagine being in the world without a short-term memory. Memory is, is, is a little bit complex because although we make memories in the hippocampus, we actually store them higher up. So if, uh, if you think about sensation as coming in down to the hippocampus, and so every single sensation is sort of cross-matched, if you like, with a memory. 
And then all of that gets integrated in the front of the brain. And let's call it very generally the frontal cortex. So you have the, the frontal cortex holds an integrated memory. So it will hold our biographical memory, um, autobiographical memory, memory of events. But then the, the hippocampus is like the workaday horse. It's, it's there making sense of every moment. It's, it's doing all that daily grind. And then that's being distilled and going up to the prefrontal cortex. And that kind of happens when we're sleeping. We get rid of the, the rubbish and we, we, we store the important stuff in a story format um, at the front of the brain. So if you don't have a functioning hippocampus, you can't make a story from day to day. So while you retain memories of things that you've already experienced and memories, for example, for motor function, for riding a bicycle, for driving a car, for cooking, you, you can't remember day to day things like somebody's name and particularly place. You become hugely disorientated for place. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So... Veronica, the hippocampus is the part of the brain that's at the core of memory making. Can you tell me how you saw the power of the hippocampus up close when you were treating a patient you refer to as MM in your first year as a psychiatry registrar? Yeah, that was that was a, a very tragic case. MM came into see me and at the time there was very little awareness really about hippocampal function and I knew immediately that there was something very strange about this woman because she was very suspicious she couldn't really make affective or emotional contact with me and more extraordinarily she was brought in by her mum and she was sitting beside her mum in a in a way that wasn't at all comfortable and she, she, she couldn't remember who anybody was. So for maybe 30 seconds of the conversation, she might know who I was, but then 30 seconds later, she wouldn't know. She didn't know where she was from moment to moment. And that's because the hippocampus, we've placed cells. So we, we, we kind of centre the world around place. And what I noticed about her was she was particularly disorientated in place. And How did that show up in, in terms of visiting you at the well, hospital? It was very interesting. We were, we were sitting in a room, in a clinical room, and I brought her outside of the room with her mum. She had to be with her mum the whole time because that was the only thing that seemed to be a constant, even though it wasn't even a constant, but at least mother, she, she needed constant supervision. So we came out of the room and um, I said, we're back in the lobby again. Do you recognise the lobby? You were, you know, here a few moments ago. And she said no. And we went back into the room and she looked around and the room was immediately new to her. And there's been one case history, a man called Henry Molson, who was described in the 1950s. And he really commenced the the whole area of hippocampal function and memory function because he had both his hippocampi removed surgically for epilepsy. And after that, he completely lost his memory. But before Henry Molson, in the pre-Henry Molson era, nobody knew the hippocampus did this. So we're, we're actually only talking, we're only talking about 60 years. So when MM came to see you and you were observing this behaviour and her confusion, did you know straight away this is something to do with the hippocampus? I didn't. I did not know. I had an intuition that it was, but I wasn't sure. And what I knew was that it wasn't what we would have called hysterical. And a lot of cases like that previously would have been said to be hysterical amnesia. Um, and, you know, Freud would have 
misdiagnosed a lot of neurological disorders as being hysterical. So how could you diagnose her or how could you ascertain what was happening in in terms of the hippocampus with those behaviours? What did you do? Well, I I said um, this woman needs a brain scan. And at the time, I mean, it's 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 so interesting. Um, this was in the late 1980s. I couldn't get a brain scan for this woman. It was so difficult. We had one scanner in Ireland at the time. Anyway, I, you know, we, we pushed we pushed her through. And in fact, she had two big tumours in her hippocampi and they were literally obliterated by tumour. So uh, she was very sick indeed. What happened to her? she certainly would not have survived for very many more months. So I guess that experience firsthand, Veronica, illustrated to you the way that memory, it's not just about the past, but it's about how we are able to be in the present. Absolutely. If you understand memory and all its dizzying complexity, you're, you're really into philosophical concepts, really like time and physics, you know, the physics of time. And because consciousness only exists in the present. In fact, everything only exists in the conscious moment. But that conscious moment is a composite of what has happened. You know, all of the events that have happened to you in your past life and integrating those with current sensation that's coming in through your conscious brain. And of course, you're using that to predict the future. So... You know, the present moment is really a sliding between the past and the future. And I often think about, you know, physics and distance and space and time because that's, that is what's happening in the brain. We have place cells, we have time cells, we have the present in the hippocampus, we have the past in the front of the brain. And, of course, we're, we're always predicting. The hippocampus is in the brain but the brain is in the body. The fact that we are all a body with all of its sensory inputs, sight, touch, smell, taste, sound, what does this mean for memory? I'm really glad you've asked me that question because I think neuroscience often forgets about the body. People who are neuroscientists tend to just look at the brain. But, of course, the the brain is undetachable from the human body and particularly when it comes to emotions because although we experience emotions in the body they are they are made in the brain and this is very closely related to memory because as we've said the memory maker is the hippocampus but perched just beside the hippocampus is a structure called the amygdala and the amygdala is what I call the emotional spark plug And that makes emotions in the body. So if you think about something uh, that triggers a memory, for example, a smell, there's a direct pathway between smell and emotion. So the, the smell sensors are located behind our nose and the amygdala is behind that again and the hippocampus is behind that again. So while most sensory modalities go to the hippocampus first and then the amygdala, smell goes in the opposite direction. So it hits the emotion spark plug before it gets to the memory. That's right. And that's why there's an immediacy about smell. So, you know, I smell freshly cut grass and I'm immediately back in early summers in my childhood. You know, so, and, and I know John Banville, the Irish, the Irish author, talks about um, the smell of salt water and the smell of lupins in the sea air. So we all have our our Proustian smells, and that's because the amygdala goes into the body and sparks off nerves in the body. So it it goes through a nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, which is, you know, the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So that will control your heart rate and your blood pressure, whether you feel a heaviness on your chest whether your heart is breaking, whether your heart is fluttering with excitement, whether you have butterflies in your stomach or whether you are rigid with fear. So all of those emotions that we experience that are played out in the body are controlled by the memory, hippocampus, amygdala, emotional spark plug combination. 
The way you're describing it, I guess that is demonstrating why the analogy of a box of mementos or a photo album isn't right for memory because it's such a dynamic process, the way you're describing it. There's sensations coming in through our body in the world and that's sparking things in our brain and then our brain sparking back into our body. It, it, it feels like it's something that's constantly shifting. Is that the way memory is working? Absolutely. It's, it's vertiginous. You know, it's it's sort of unimaginable. When we talk about meta-consciousness, I, I, I feel sometimes when you're thinking about memory, it's meta, meta, meta. <laughs> Extra meta. <laughs> Extra meta-consciousness. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're, we're just forever moving on and um, bouncing, bouncing off. Let's let's talk about babies and memory. You know, when I sometimes look at photos with my kids, particularly when they were littler, they used to ask, why can't I remember that? They'd see a picture of themselves and say, like, why can't I remember that? Or why can't I remember being born? Why can't we remember right, right, right back to our earliest moments? Because we didn't have a hippocampus. When does the hippocampus appear? <laughs> well, the, the, when, you're, when you're born, your brain is sort of counterintuitively, I guess, overconnected. Everything is... It's like dust particles. Everything is firing off all over the place. And that's that's why we keep environments very quiet for babies. We, we intuitively uh, reduce the sensory input to children. We speak in low voices. We repeat ourselves. You know, we don't overload them with any sensory information. And that's because their their brains can't process it. They haven't learned to filter or to discriminate. So... They do have the native tissue, if you like, for a hippocampus, but they haven't formed the connections yet. And the, the sensory input has to be very measured to a child. And then gradually they build up the hippocampus and memory. And at a certain point then, suddenly we have the beginnings of consciousness. And when consciousness occurs, memory occurs. So when we're talking about memory... Children have memory, but they don't have conscious memory. So obviously a child, before it has conscious memory, can walk. Walking is a form of memory. It's implicit memory, but it's memory. They can talk. They can babble. Sometimes they can speak in, you know, rudimentary sentences. But they don't have biographical memory. So they don't, they're not able to look at themselves as if they are someone else and remember themselves. So the first memory is really the first moment of consciousness. So it's not connected with language then. I'd, I'd assume that, that our memories must happen once we've got language and words to be able to, to put labels to an experience, but it's actually prior to that, is mm. it? It's, it's the formation of the, those connections that are happening in the, in the hippocampus. Well, it's the connection between the hippocampus and the frontal lobe. I mean, when people talk about their first memory, what they're talking about is their first moment of awareness. Um, and, and that can't happen until you have the mental machinery to imagine yourself. So what the, the hippocampus is in a very rudimentary form, but it's the connection between the hippocampus and the frontal lobe, that connection, that first mirror of ourselves that enables us to form that first memory. And so what's happening in the, the brain of a, of, a, of a baby as it starts to, uh, as its brain start to develop is what, like a simplification of, of all of those connections, a winnowing down of all of the energy that's happening or connections that are happening there. That's right. It's the first form of integration of information. So before that, it's all connecting everywhere all the time, everything all at once, and, that, right. and then it gets, it gets simplified. No wonder babies scream. That's Veronica right. need to be wrapped up tight and put in a, a quiet yeah. room. It must be, there must be a lot happening. It must feel quite overwhelming. Absolutely, yeah. So that first memory that you described for us of you looking at your little orange cardigan, was it? That's your first moment of consciousness, of, right. of self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, if we look back on our lives, you can see that the process of maturation 
is one of increasing self-awareness, really. And when we get to a certain point of self-awareness, we develop a more acute awareness of other people. And then when you're when you're my age, you you understand that everybody is living within um, a kind of connectedness like we are. We are in our own consciousness, but we're also very much connected. And the level of awareness that one has of oneself, I think, is commensurate with the awareness you have of other people's awareness. So maturation really is, you know, if, if, if you look at the connectivity in the brain, the same process is happening in the world outside. Just before our first child was born, my husband and I were putting together a cot that had been handed on from my brother and it was in parts. And both my husband and I remembered very vividly there being this metal support that was a crucial part of this cot <laughs> being put together. We both had an image of it, we were describing it to each other and we couldn't find it. I mean, we, we turned the house upside down, we're looking in the garage and finally I rang my brother and said, like, did you come and take it back? We can't find it. He said that there was no metal strut. What are you talking about? No, it doesn't need that. That's not there. So we'd completely, both of us, invented this other element. And when we think about that, and I've thought about that a lot, what does it say about how trustworthy our memories are? <laughs> like that was completely real, not just to me, but to him. How do we know which of our memories are, are real and which aren't? That's so interesting. Did you have a cot when you were younger that had a metal bar in it? You yourself? Because I think old fashioned cots did have metal bars. So maybe what you were doing was you were remembering cots from your own childhood. Maybe. But memory is not reliable. No, because when you when you think about what a memory is, a memory is, is essentially a clump of cells that have grown together. And it is the pattern of connectivity among this clump of cells that represents a memory. And, you know, we, we've spoken about how organic this is and how plastic it is. And some memories are more solid than others, but they're all op open to being disrupted. And in fact, when you're putting a current through a memory, in other words, remembering it, you're also leaving it open to the possibility of being disrupted. So every time you remember something, you're you're not necessarily weakening it, but you're opening up the possibility of it being modified. And of course, some people are more suggestible than others, so it's easier to modify their memories. And these would be people who, you know, are suggestible. So what attitude do you take to your own memories then, Veronica? I mean, how seriously do you take them or how, how trustworthy do you We've, we've got to have a sense of trust for them because they're our sense of self and, and they're mm. the story we tell ourselves. But is there at the same time an awareness that maybe the way I remember it is not actually how it happened or not completely? Well, I try in, insofar as I can to hold on to veridical truth, to the actual events of reality. But I'm also aware at another level of how my idea of those events has been modified. I try not to modify the event themselves, but I do see how my attitude to things changes over time. I'm very, I'm very aware of that and I'm, I'm not harsh on myself. So when I look back at some of the attitudes that I had when I was younger and, you know, we're not humble when we're young, at least I wasn't, and very eager to prove yourself. So, you know, that kind of vanity has fallen away. So when I look back at myself, I, I see that vanity. I don't see myself as being um, the way I am now back then. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see myself in that sort of way and to understand that my perceptions then were, um, you know, they were very driven by, by self and by ambition. So I, I think if we're going to record history, if we're going to look into ourselves, if we're going to look for the truth, we've kind of got to hold on to that, but allow ourselves also to change, not to live in the past like um, Miss Haversham, you know, because then we're just going to become calcified and, you know, time doesn't stop. 
But I don't think we should be constantly reinventing ourselves either. That's too insubstantial. So I, th I think in, in some senses we've got to hold fast to the centre, but also allow ourselves to develop. Hold fast loosely, maybe. Yes. You've, you've <laughs> described how extreme conditions like psychosis distort memory. What other more mundane things distort our memories? What about sleep as something as, as oh, yes. simple as that? What, what impact does that have on memory? Well, the, the hippocampus has a satiety point. We only have so many cells in our hippocampus and they do reach capacity. And when they reach capacity, we get tired and confused. We become less effective when we're tired because our short-term memories aren't working as well. Our hippocampi are saturated. They get filled, filled up, up over a day. Yeah, filled up. And what about cortisol? What about stress, which is something you were looking at right back at the start of your career? How does that affect memory and our ability to process memory? Well, that, well the, the effect that stress has on memories is hugely interesting because when we're stressed, the, the way that we remember has to change. If we're in a stressful situation, we have to be vigilant. So we have to scan our environment. We have to be able to take in a lot of information and, you know, if we're taking in a lot of information, it's at the cost of depth. So we're taking in quite a lot of superficial information. On the other hand, if you're reading a book or you're researching something, you need to be able to focus, you need to be able to concentrate. So if you're very stressed, you cannot concentrate is, is the point. And um, if you're exposed to a lot of stress, a lot of cortisol over a long period of time, your hippocampus itself, begins to break down. Really, when it starts to even look different, if you, it if gets you smaller. examined it, it yeah. gets smaller. It shrinks. And we have done studies in depression, and it's a very well-replicated finding, that the hippocampus, particularly on the left, we found in our latest study, shrinks in depression. But the good news is that following depression, the hippocampus grows back again. <gasps> really? Yeah. If And if you maintain remission for five years, your hippocampus will grow back to the size of somebody of your age. So it, it, it is modifiable. I mean, the brain is plastic. And if you look at it microscopically, what's actually happening with the individual neurons within the hippocampus is the connections between the neurons called the dendrites are atrophying. And the, the neurons are still there but the dendrites are atrophying. So you can reconnect your brain by taking treatment. And, and that might be sleep, it might be less stress, it might be medication, that whole suite of things that people treat. Absolutely. Use to treat depression. Yeah. You're an ocean swimmer, Veronica, in the Irish Sea, no less. Is that something that you do partly for the good of your brain and the good of your memory? <laughs> um, yes. Um, I, be, I belong to... Uh, a tribe of Irish swimmers that uh, we believe, <laughs> perhaps perhaps incorrectly, but we, we believe that if we immerse ourselves in very cold water and swim as far as we can, that um, it will reinvigorate our brains and certainly it does wake you up. <laughs> There's no debate about that bit. <laughs> and I also believe that Swimming, um, particularly if you if you can get a long swim in during the summer days, you become very connected with nature and with there's just the water and the sky, and you almost be it's it's almost like a feeling of transcendence. You become a part of that, and that losing of yourself, I think, is is very important in terms of maintaining a sense of self, really. Hmm. <laughs> A loss of memory is the big fear that a lot of people have around ageing. What happens to our hippocampus as we get older? Well, the hippocampus eventually shrinks and that's from wear and tear. And it's, it's like, you know, if you're depressed and the cortisol shrinks your brain, of course, stress accumulates over a lifetime in the same way that your heart doesn't pump as effectively when you're 90 as it does when you're 20. The same thing happens in the brain. So we get a relative decline in function. But in, in terms of our brain, th th there are compensations. And one of the compensations is that the connections in the higher parts of the brain are stronger. 
And in, in, in a way, we, our brains are more distilled. We, we, we don't, we're filtering out rubbish. And we're thinking more about the core important things, about core values. And the abstract part of our brains, the, the, the part that is uh, not involved with the incidentals of day to day and that, that part of our brain is actually sort of free flowing. And that's hugely important in terms of society, I think. And maybe it's something, you know, maybe we're, we're driven by the, the more driven by the vanity of youth, perhaps, than we ought to be. And we're, you know, bringing back this, the, the wisdom of the elders, I think, has a very good effect for, for all of us. Is that something you've noticed in your own brain as the years have gone by, that your own way of thinking and remembering has, has changed? Absolutely. I mean, I, I see people now struggling with um, pathways to understanding things that I struggled with. And, you know, I've, I've, I have bypassed those now, so I don't have to use my brain to understand those things. For example, I suppose, you know, any foundational knowledge that you have, for example, the whole area of neuroscience, you know, I can I can cut through an awful lot of issues. So I've, I have lots of shortcuts in my brain for information. So I can I can use um, my brain to do other things that are more creative now. So I think an older brain, you know, artists frequently improve visual artists. I have a friend who's a visual artist and her she's in her 60s now. She's improving with age. Like you look at Lucian Freud, I mean his his later paintings are absolutely spectacular. So the, the creative part of your brain, the part that's free to negotiate these abstract concepts, I think improves with age. Yes. Yeah. Veronica, <laughs> it's been just a joy to have a little insight into your brain and your thinking and, and your years of study around all of this. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Veronica O'Keane was my guest on Conversations today. Veronica is Professor of Psychiatry and Consultant Psychiatrist at Trinity College Dublin. And her book is The Rag and Bone Shop, How We Make Memories and Memories Make Us. And that phrase, the rag and bone shop, comes from a poem by the great Irish poet W.B. Yeats, The Circus Animal's Desertion. Veronica was in Australia as a guest of the World Science Festival. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.